I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome, everyone, to a very special episode of Reconsider, part of the Agora Podcast Network, where we don't do the thinking for you. And today we have a very special guest. And the reason we brought in our very special guest is that we love being able to introduce toolkits and techniques for having more effective political dialogue. And as you know, we're big fans of stopping and asking yourself the question, how will I actually make progress in this conversation? What is my goal? And we're getting some help on that. And today we're excited to welcome a special guest who is a practitioner of just this sort of thinking, David Camps. His project has to do with enabling people to have conversations to dismantle racism, one conversation at a time. And the focus is on efficacy rather than emotions, results rather than righteousness. So it's really right up our alley here at Reconsider. And we wanted to bring in David to learn about his methodologies for dismantling racism and how they've been applied effectively to help people break through entrenched barriers of bias and emotion and identity and tribalism in others. You know, how do people actually have real conversations with others who may be very deeply dug in in their beliefs and get them to start seeing things differently? We're also very curious about how this methodology can be more widely applied to other issues in the wider spectrum of politics. So I have a sneaking suspicion that what David is doing with racism is something that is something that we can is a set of techniques that we can use to you know heal and fix a lot of what's broken elsewhere. So David's project is called the White Ally Project, and we'll get into that, and I'll let David introduce that in a moment. In terms of David's background, he got his bachelor's degree in comp sci from Princeton initially, then went to UC Berkeley, where he got both a master's and PhD in public policy analysis and city and regional planning. We are super excited to have David on the show. It's taken a long time. We finally found a time. David, thank you so much for joining us. Well, I really appreciate being on your show. Thank you so much. So, David, let's just start at the basics. What is the White Ally Project and what led you to start it? Sure. So just for precision, the project is called the White Ally Toolkit, which you can get, you can find at whiteallytoolkit.com. It's also, it has a dual name called the Ally Conversation Toolkit. And it has that name because one, you don't want to always call it white. Some, some institutions get uncomfortable calling something white and signing a check for that. And also the Ally Conversation Toolkit has a convenient acronym called ACT. 
because we want people to take action on racism. Too much of racism work is focused on knowledge or awareness and not on action. So people can find it at whiteallytoolkit.com or allyconversationtoolkit.com. It's the same place. What led me to start it is looking at the, the, both the, the run-up to the 2016 election as well as the results. In the run-up, it was clear to me that there were all these angry white people who had gotten behind a candidate and they were about to lose the election in a massive way and that wasn't going to be good for democracy. And I figured, well, let me start a little project here to have people learn how to listen to each other. So I started a little project called Americans Listen. And the goal was to have white people who didn't like Donald Trump have a, a conversation with white people who did like Donald Trump, figuring the people who liked him were going to lose. And the, the interest was in trying to probe, what are these people angry about? And uh, what are the, the barriers to listening to them? So I mobilized a, a little bit of money to have about 60 interview, hour-long interviews done uh, in, before the election. And, and then the election happened, shocking everybody, uh, including me and Mr. Trump, I believe. And then I said, okay, what, what, how do I, what I make of this? And I organized another effort around the inauguration in the March where people did 15-minute interviews, about 60 of them, on, right on the mall. But in the interregnum period, I realized, okay, here's how I interpreted the election. I interpreted the election as we just experienced a massive white ally fail. In my opinion, uh, an election that close where everything matters, you know, Hillary not going to Wisconsin matters, the Russians matter, Jill Stein matters, and everything matters, including the idea that a whole bunch of white people who think of themselves as woke or understand racism, et cetera, didn't talk to the mamas and the cousins and their neighbors about the question of whether Mr. Trump was so racially problematic as to be disqualified. Not that he, not to be against the period, but just whether that was an issue to be discussed. A whole bunch of people didn't have that conversation. And so I said, okay, clearly we need some effort to help white people talk to other white people about this about this race question. By the way, the reason thought of having white people talk to white people is because racial anxiety is a kind of a, uh, a feeling between two people where people are worried about being judged with a racial lens. And since race, race was an issue in the election, I wanted the conversations with the Trump supporters to not have racial anxiety in the conversation. So that's why I wanted white people to talk to white people. So then he, the election happens and I say, okay, we need, I need to move this to a different level. So I started, I decided I was going to utilize all my year, decades of experience in dialogue work to say, how can white people talk to other white people about racial issues in a way that moves the needle? Does that answer your question? I hope. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. And one of the caveats we need to make is that, you know, at here at Reconsider, we're very tenuous about taking strong positions on political issues. So obviously, we're dealing with an issue right now with David that, you know, is, is very emotional and painful for a lot of people and something where, you know, in, in particular, I think, you know, David, the part of the effort of your project is that people don't agree on the ground truth, right? That mm -hmm. it's not even that, oh, we want to, we all see the same kind of problem and we want to solve it differently. It's that we don't even agree on the nature of the problem. And so one of the things I want to note is that Xander and I are not going to take a strong stance here on what's mm -hmm. true and what's not. We're going to let David go crazy because that's, you know, because um, <laughs> I think it's very important for setting up the rest of the conversation. And actually, this is a good transition to one of my other questions is that, you know, I've done a little bit of reading, but for our listeners, what's the divide on the 
core problem or the the ground truth that you know you've that you know that you've identified you've clearly identified a divide that's measurable and how do you that's impacting the the wider scene sure now i'll i'll take that at the at a couple of different levels the the first level is uh, at the level of how the project is defined so the project explicit goal is to deal with the following polling data shows that 55% of white folks think that racism against white people is just as significant of a national problem as racism against people of color. So that means that the white community is very split on that. Parenthetically, on that score, about 20, the portions of people of color of that are in the low to, low to high 20s who think that racism against white people is just as big of a problem. So white people are significantly split on that. And they're certainly split from people of color. So that is at one level, the on-the-ground perceptual dis- disjunction that we're dealing with. Now, that's from polling data. Now, I'll go further than that. I've written in an op-ed in the Greensboro News and Record a couple of years ago that my analysis is that a core difference between a core political issue about racism is one, whether or not there's something called unconscious bias, and whether, i.e., whether or not one can manifest and, and, and uh, carry on racially problematic behaviors, or you can call them racist behaviors if you want to, and not be aware of that. That's number one. And number two, whether or not the history of our racial legacy is relevant to our, to our life today. So my analysis is that the racism minimizing position, which is often, it's often the position that's been promoted in a, it's sort of in the conservative ideology, is that only conscious bias matters and the history doesn't matter that much. And the, the, more, the other position that I'm more aligned up with is unconscious bias is possible and the history of our racial hierarchies does matter and that both of those together have implications for what we need to do from a public policy standpoint. I think that that's the divide. Now, I ultimately think, and we can talk about this if you want to, I ultimately think that one can be a conservative and still have, and, and not, and, and you can be a conservative and believe that unconscious bias matters and that history matters, but we just want to use conservative solutions to get at it. So I think that the way that the conservative movement has been pushed to answer those questions the way I just described is an unfortunate reality in American politics and makes our politics more racialized and is unnecessary. So I, I hear you on the ground truth issue. I'm just trying to be explicit as I lay this out about my, how I look at that. So yes, I mean, and I know, I know that it's important that you guys as neutral conveners be neutral, but I am, I'm, I'm trying to be explicit about my beliefs, recognizing that I think we need as a collect, as a body politic, we need to help construct an anti-racist conservatism and anti-racism ju- just means unconscious bias matters and historical racism does matter. And I really like the way that you frame the issue as multiple parts. I think that's, I will take the stance, I think that's one thing that's missing from the conversations that I observe. Now, of course, most of the conversations that one is exposed to day to day tend to be the most inflammatory because that's what tends to get bubbled mm-hmm. to the top. But we don't see conversations about, hey, where are we seeing conscious bias, you know, overt bias. I don't like people of color or a certain color. And unconscious bias, you know, which is, of course, I have no problem. You know, I, I can't search my heart and find a problem with people of color of a certain color. You know, however, can each individual person ask the question of themselves that, ooh, has my experience or what I've been exposed to 
cause some unconscious bias where I'm more likely to tell a certain kind of story in reaction to an event that I see if if the person involved in the story is a person of color or not. And that I'm, I'm a big fan of doing the hard work to pick apart those distinctions mm-hmm. when we have these conversations. I think they, I think they tend to be much more effective. Part of what we try to persuade people to do who come to our workshops and our workshops, you know, the fact of the matter is most of the people are on the progressive side of the ledger and they're primarily talking to people on the conservative side of the ledger. Now, I think that there are conservative people who think racism is real and there are liberal people who don't. But if for the most part, the distinction between of that 55% of, of white folks who don't think racism is real, a big portion of those people are conservative people. So it is largely a conservative liberal thing, but it's not only that. But what we try to teach to folks who want to make a difference on racism in their own families and circles is it's important to get in touch and connect with and learn to tell the stories about where they notice themselves having thoughts that indicate they're affected by the same stereotypes and propaganda that we are all affected by, including people of color, uh, about other people. And because part of what happens is there's shame around admitting that we have these thoughts. So part of the reason why there's so much denial is because we have made being a quote unquote racist such a moral crime. I think, I think actually polling data suggests like there's being a murderer, there's being a child molester, child molester, and then there's being a racist. So now you got even the Klan who says, I'm not racist, I'm just pro-white. But you have, nobody's racist now because we've made being a racist such an anathema, which is sort of good, but sort of not good, given that a whole bunch of ways that racism comes out is through unconscious thoughts. We've, we've, we're all deciding that we're free of that. But part of what we try to do is to get people to say, I mean, think of, let me, let me tell you a story about a time when I had a thought for a moment or for more, longer than a moment to invite other white people to say, yes, I had this thought too. So that's a, that's a big part of uh, what we try to do. Not the only thing, but a big part of what we try to do. So this really seems like the essence of the White Ally Toolkit methodological approach that really felt like it squared with sort of the reconsider principles, which is how do you approach an idea, a concept that is entrenched in the minds, not just of a couple, but there's sort of this social entrenchment for, as you said, historical reasons, local cultural reasons and all that. So let's get into some of the, the methodology mm-hmm. that you practice and which you have found effective. So how do you go about ascertaining and then dismantling deeply held beliefs on you know what you sure. may think is a flawed position? And, and how could one begin to practice that sort of approach to conversation? Sure. The core method is called something called the race method, which is a four-step conversational management strategy, uh, and that stands for reflect, ask, connect, expand. And uh, I want to explain it, but I also want to give you the, some of the justification behind it. So at a big picture level, the race method is about two things. Move the conversation from facts and opinions, at least at first, to storytelling. And second, you try to agree before you disagree. So now, there's reasons for that, and I'll run, I'll run through this very quickly. One of the things we know is that there's something called confirmation bias and it's twin the backfire effect, i.e., when you hear facts that are at odds with your deeply held beliefs, what people do is to double down on their beliefs. And this is true as, as a general human, certainly American phenomenon, and it's true across the aisle, conservatives and liberals. So you're, that, that means you're unlikely to persuade people, at least initially based on facts, if they don't trust you. If you're offering them 
facts that are in contradiction to their belief system, they're likely to re- they're, they're highly likely to reject that. So that's number. That's one thing. The second thing is we're tribal beings, and by when you present people with a set of arguments and there's no there's little trust, they start to see you as an opposing tribe. Now that's so you you have you have those facts that are way against you. Things that work for you are something, there's something called mirror neurons. Mirror neurons are activated when you know you're you're you've seen people like somebody yawns, somebody else starts yawning, or somebody laughs, somebody else starts laughing, don't even know what they're laughing at, or crying, or you you're on a stage and you trip and the audience says oops, right? Mirror neurons are parts of our brain that are when we feel connected with somebody, our mind wants to experience what they experience, which is also related to the next point, which is the power of story. When people tell us a good story that we find compelling, we're in the story with them. That's why we can cry at somebody else's story or cry at movies or or feel anger at somebody else's experience. So the idea is to try to construct your strategy in a conversation to use, to avoid tribalism and the background effect and to use those other aspects. And also, there's also something called the reciprocity principle, which is if I do something nice for you, there's a part of you that knows you should do something nice for me. So, you know, we've all gotten those invitations from people, people's bachelor parties or, or birthday parties. And do I have to go to this? Or even like, do I have to send that person a Christmas card? They send it to me. So part of what we're trying to do is to leverage that. So I'll now explain. So in, with that as a background, let me explain how the race method works. The race method, basically, if somebody says something really that you find troubling or disturbing, you know, again, we're talking about this is the context of uh, race conversations, but you could apply it to other issues. The first thing you want to do is to reflect, like calm yourself down, because a, a whole bunch of white people, understandably, much less people of color, somebody says something racially problematic, and they, they get upset, they get activated, they have a visceral response, and that is not a good place from which to make strategic choices in conversation. So you want to figure out, huh, how do I relax and stay focused? Now, it's really good if you've done the pre-reflection before that issue happens. So you've already thought about, like, what do I need to do to get in listening mode? Because listening is going to be a very important part of this. So you think of that in advance, and maybe you even think of the stories you're going to tell about a particular topic. In racism, people, people know what's, what racial problematic statements they hear, so you can prepare for them in advance. So there's the pre-reflect, and then in the moment, you stop and you take a breath, or you go to the bathroom and say, I'll be, I'll be right back. I want to talk to you about that. I'll be right back. And you go calm yourself down before you engage. That's reflect. Ask is what you want to do. Remember I said you you shift from opinion to storytelling. That means you ask a question about their belief. And but you you might do a little bit on their belief. What you really want to get at is the uh, is the experience behind their belief. So you say, that's an interesting way of looking at that. Tell me a recent experience you had that confirms why you see it that way. Or you ask for something that happened long ago or how their beliefs have evolved over time. What you're trying to get them to do is tell you a story, not just a, a recast the belief, but to tell them your ex, the experience behind their belief. What are, you, what are you doing? One of the things you're doing is firing up your own mirror neurons. So you, so you are, you, you got to generate up your empathy to listen. But once they do that, hopefully that makes you empathetic even more. Okay, that's ask, reflect, ask, connect. What you want to do is to find something true in what they said and then you tell them a story that confirms that there's something true in it. So they tell you that people of color don't work as hard as um, white people. And by the way, 32% of, the, of white Americans think that. It was 60% in 1990. So yay, there's progress, right? So you might not believe that people of color are more lazy, but you do believe hard work is important. And you might have some cousin who has his hard work has never been important and now it's showing up in his life. Or people of color should not stop complaining about the police because everybody knows you get treated fairly by the police if you act right. Well, you don't necessarily believe that, but you believe there are good cops out there. So you tell a story about that. So the point is you're, you're building trust with them 
by agreeing with something they said. And if you used to believe like that whole hog, then you tell them, you know, I understand this way of looking at it. I used to believe that. And you don't diminish that. You just, you stand in it, respect yourself in the past and them now. And you do that all before you try to expand their thinking with another personal story that communicates your feeling that race is real or racism is real or whatever that is, whatever is your point of disagreement, you work your way to that by, by first telling them, doing the ask and the connect, and then you, you illustrate that not with some facts, but with a story that illustrates why you believe that. And what people have found is by sequencing a conversation in this way, you're not only more likely to be influential, you're more likely that the conversation is connecting and not disconnecting. Well, what was E? It was reflect. Ask, uh, connect, expand. I mean, I didn't say expand. 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 Maybe I didn't say it. So just to be clear, you tell your expand story last, after you tell a connect story and after you've asked them a question, you tell them an expand story, which tends to expand their view from what they believe now. So you tell them a story that illustrates why you believe what you believe, which is in dis- disagreement with what they believe. But you remember, you have already, you've connected with them by telling them a story which shows that you have some alignment with them. Then you tell them an expand story so that you, it illustrates what you believe that might be at odds with them. But at this point, you have built up some, potentially some trust in them, with them, maybe even fired up their mirror neurons. And you've, you have shifted the conversation from a conversation that's about beliefs to a conversation about experiences. So on some level, you have said, we have, we're going to look at ex- our experiences as a way of understanding the truth about the world. We're going to start with your experiences. You tell me a story. Oh, that's interesting. That's great. And you know, I have a story that's that not, un- not unlike that. And then you tell them your story. So now experience is the basis of our conversation. And then you tell them experience that tends to expand their thinking. That's the idea. So thank you. Thank you for that clarification. And just a note to our listeners, if you want to learn more about the race method in detail, go to David's website, whiteallytoolkit.com. There's a video. You can check it out. It's actually a video course and you'll get more detail. So I'm, I'm going to do a bit of, I'm going to do a bit of reflecting because to some extent, what I'd like to do is see where this overlaps with some work that Xander and I have done on, on just bigger issues in general, which one of the, one of the reasons I like in particular, you know, projects that are dedicated towards the specific issues that people get more amped up about, Ooh, I want to go solve this problem. Then I want to just learn a methodology for an undefined problem. And so let me know if this reflecting is, is just full of it, mm-hmm. but okay. two things that I'm seeing in this that I think are really resonant for me is one is vulnerability and two is what I call getting to yes. So the, the vulnerability part I, I find really powerful. So my, my perspective is I think on the issue of any, any social issue like race or gender or, or sexuality, but, but even uh, many others as well, the tribes that are most passionate about it often demand purity from their own members and from <laughs> others. Right? They, yeah. try, they try to purge impureness from themselves, from their group and from the world. And so I assume it is extremely difficult for a lot of people to have the vulnerability to be able to look at anyone, their own tribe, another tribe and say, yes, about this thing I'm very passionate about. In this case, it's race. Like I am impure, right? I have like, I have thoughts where, you know, when I see a person of color doing something like here was a story that fired in my head and I, I have to grapple with it. So I'm, I'm wondering if like kind of some of the internal mindset that you're teaching here is like, 
the capacity to be vulnerable and let go of oh, yeah. for purity. You speaking the truth, brother. You speaking <laughs> the truth. So yes, part of what, and then there's, there's a whole other aspect I want to talk about. So on the, so yes, people, because of the history of racism that we all want to put behind us, part of what happens is that people who think that racism, we, we've collectively gotten past it, there's no more work to be done, i.e. many people on the right, they want to say, we've all done that work, America's great, I'm great, we're all fine, and the people, just, the people just whine it, right? So they want to say, nobody's racist anymore, especially not me. But that is colluded by people on the left, those, those people's brothers and sisters, white folks on the left, who want to say, oh, no, no, I'm good, it's those other white people that are the problem. So, so, so they don't want to admit, uh, admit out loud to themselves, or especially to, to, those, to their cousins, that yeah, I still am touched by that problem. And what that collectively does is make this problem all in the past. It's like a collective silence about it. And so that, so you're right, people wanna be free of the problem. And for that matter, let's, if we go, if we push what you said even further, there's many situations in which people of, white folks have been taught that if you admit that you have racially problematic thoughts, then the people kind of looking at you crazy, right? They're like, they're, what, what are you talking about? See, like, there, there's all sorts of there's not there's not reinforcement, there's not positive regard for that. Now, the, a lot of people are past that, but some people are not. And so, if you look at if you look at politicians, if you look at celebrities, if people have racially problematic things that they do, they they're not. They're, it's a question of whether you they're to be shunned or excluded or not. Now, of course, people don't, it would be much more mature as a culture, and I've advocated for this, that when people have these kind of problems, they say, well, you know, I am touched by this too. Like, we see this even in the Liam Neeson thing, where he admits to having these racist thoughts, and he says, I'm not a racist. I'm not a racist now, though. I'm past that. As opposed to, I sometimes still have these thoughts. I used to have them a lot more. So, yes, there's that, that purity question is really, really a problem and important. But it also goes to a whole, there's a, uh, there's a other layer of it too, which is that if you're in the position that racism matters and racism still is a problem, then we push people to be ideologically pure about that and not want to acknowledge that racism in certain important aspects have actually declined and we can it, it, it own up to that. So there's an ideologically pure question as well. So, yes. so, so, so that also actually undermines productive racial discourse. And I just, just to be clear, for those, for those people who want to call me a problem, I have done uh, pilgrimages with John Lewis. And you know, we all know who, how John Lewis' contribution to American history. And one of the things that he said on his pilgrimages is that the, the only thing more irritating than white people who say everything has changed is black people who say nothing has changed, right? So I'm with John Lewis in that there has been substantial racial progress that we need to call progress and that the people on the left don't want to own up to that. And the fact that they don't want to own up to that makes it difficult to communicate with people on the right who know that it's true, but they're also propagandized to believe, they're also propagandized to believe that it's all progress. So my point, what I try to teach in the workshops is by admitting and collecting with a story about how there's been racial progress, you put yourself in a better position to talk to somebody, to do the getting the yes thing you talked about, to say, well, can we admit that there's been significant racial progress and that there's still, we ain't done with the work. But if you don't want to admit uh, that there's progress, it's going to be difficult for, to move them off of their position that it's all progress and no work has to be done. 
For our listeners, can you tell us briefly who John Lewis is? I'm assuming you mean the congressperson. Yes, I mean the congressperson who was a civil rights leader, a, a, a vital participant, a young leader in the march from Selma to Montgomery, got his head beaten open by cops, and he's now, a, he's been, he was a famous civil rights leader for a long time after, the, after that, and is now a member of Congress, an esteemed member of Congress. So the getting to yes thing I wanted to pick on, and then I will say off the trade, and I, I loved your elaboration on purity as twofold. So thank you. On getting to yes, the thing I'm imagining from the E part of the race methodology is you've shown some vulnerability. You say, hey, I have, I have stories about how I have you know, not been pure, right? And, and, mm-hmm. and then you open someone else up with, with mirroring and with reciprocity that they're able to be vulnerable with you as well because, oh, I'm not going to get a lecture. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to be screamed at. I'm not going to, someone's not going to high horse me and say, aha, I am holier than thou. You have admitted that you have racist thoughts. I never do. So F you, I'm, I'm better than you now, right? Nobody wants that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I was going to ask you, does lecturing work? But I'm just going to say like, it, I know <laughs> we, know, we know it don't work. Yeah. So I, I don't need to play. <laughs> but the, the getting a yes thing I'm excited about is in the expand stage, you say, hey, I've, you know, I've got this story of where, where I've seen in the case of the white ally toolkit, like I've seen a person of color treated very badly in, in a way that, you know, I'd anticipate that a white person wouldn't or, or something like that. And in all these kinds of conversations, the moment I'm looking for is someone to go like, okay, yeah, I can see that. Like I, that one thing is what I can see. And this is where you can disagree or expand or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. But the thing you're looking for with stuff that's deeply entrenched is you know, people need to be so ideologically pure in their, in their minds that the moment you get someone to say, ooh, there's an exception to what I think, like one exception, mm-hmm. one, one example, mm. one point here that I'm now on board with, the whole edifice of my ideology is perfectly correct and yours is perfectly wrong starts to fall apart. And that's often what I'm looking for in a conversation about an issue I feel passionate about. I'm wondering, you know, you know I, I think that, that, that I hadn't thought of it that way. That's a really good way of thinking about that, because, I mean, part of what I think that the race conversation is caught up is between the ideological purity, as we kind of discussed. So you have, you know, the, the, the Southern strategy as manifested by Richard Nixon trying to make sure that he didn't he didn't lose too many votes to George Wallace in the 868 election, which basically starts a whole tradition equating conservatism and republicanism with denials of any claims of the reality of racism. That's what that starts to do, to appeal to a part of the white population, which doesn't want to uh, think about those uh, about racism anyway, wants to deny that it's real. So that you, you have that whole thing started in the late 60s, and Repo- ex-Republican operatives will tell you that that has, been, that has continued. So, so, you have the, so you have the very unfortunate manipulation slash cultivation of the, of the conservative movement to diminish any claims of racism to the point of ideological purity where you can't, you, you, you can't, you have to deny what's obvious. You, if you look at Trump's appointees to a whole bunch of, to not cabinet positions, but just below that, they can't even, many of them couldn't even acknowledge that discrimination is still a real thing because on some level, I mean, there's a whole bunch of factors why they couldn't do it, but that reflects a, a, a disinclination in the conservative movement to acknowledge racism is real because, again, we have not cultivated anti-racist conservatism to say we can acknowledge racism and then still say we're going to use conservative solution. So, so you have those people being ideologically pure, and then you have the critical race theorists on the left who want to act like there's been no progress in racism, just change. 
you know, I, I, certainly the, the slavery by another name is the name of a book. And I'm not denying that there's ways in which we have echoes of that past in our current situation. But from a practical standpoint, you get people pushed to never admit that anything, any racial progress has been made. Let me give you a specific, a specific example. One of the things that I often do with uh, black people of a certain age is I talk about, I ask the question of were there no go areas when, in, the, in the 80s and 70s that are no longer exist? And I know this is true because one, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm old enough, 57. I lived in New York City in the 80s when there were three spontaneously forming white mobs that lynched black men in New York City in the 80s. Now, there wasn't lynching with a noose, but it was with mobs formed that, who, of people who didn't know each other who killed black men in the 80s. There were places in, in almost any metropolitan area you couldn't go to. Boston, Philly, New York, et cetera. A black person couldn't go to it. It was unsafe to go to. Now, that's not really true. People don't want to call that racial progress. I talk to black people about this, and they, like, I have to push them to admit that things are better. Now, for me personally, this makes a great deal of difference in my sense of personal safety as an American. Like that freedom of movement thing is real now. It wasn't real when I was a younger man. So, but, but part of the reason people don't want to admit it is because we've been pushed by critical race theorists and their, which is a, which, is, which I'm, by the way, I'm not, I'm not completely decrying that whole way of looking at things. But we've been pushed to be ideologically pure about our analysis of the racial situation, which makes it difficult to do the kind of getting to yes thing you're talking about. Because people on the right know there's a big there's a difference, but even, 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 even though they're propagandized in the other direction. So part of what I'm trying to get people to do is to, is to not be ideologically pure, ideologically pure, or as you just described, personally pure either. And so, and, and yes, I'm trying to get them to see that yeah, well, there's still, not only do I know of a story about something happened to a black person, I know of a story of my own heart or my own thoughts that I can lift up and not be, I'm not proudly talking about it, but I am talking about it publicly and inviting you to say, don't you have thoughts like that? Of course, people have thoughts like that. Black people admit it, Jesse have thoughts like that. Jesse Jackson talked about having thoughts like that, turning around, walking on the street and hearing people behind him and then turning around and being relieved that it was white guys and not black guys. He talked about that years ago. So I'm just saying, given the way that the societal stereotypes, how they affect everybody, it's, it's important that we start surfacing that and inviting people to admit that so that we can bust this kind of collusion around everybody's pure of heart, which ultimately makes it hard to talk about the racism still existing. That's an incredible story, by the way. I, I think as, as a white man who has not had to deal with that sort of sense of degraded personal security in like a major American city, I don't know. It, it hits me somewhere and I don't exactly know what to say about it. But I think that as an anecdote for how progress can be made despite challenges still existing is a great one. And I think we actually can find a lot of examples of that in modern day, not just in terms of rights of people of color, but women, health, disease and illnesses. I, I tell my friends I'm actually a closet optimist sometimes because day to day I'm a cynic. And I, I, don't, I don't really think much for human nature. And I think that- right. If you assume the worst, you're often going to be right. At the same time, there's still a lot of positive things we can say about where we are today compared to 100 years ago. So thank, thank you for sharing that anecdote. Let me give you another one. And if, if it decides it's not worth it, you can edit it out. Yeah, <laughs> please, please, please. So uh, when I was working for the White House in uh, 1997, it was uh, 21 years ago, and I'm living in D.C., and I'm coming to, visit my, uh, coming to uh, North Carolina to visit my parents. They live where they live now in Stonesville, North Carolina. So I was at a young enough age where... I would, I love my parents, but I'm trying to get away from them and go have, go a drink on Saturday night. So I go to the nearest big city, 10,000 people, 
<laughs> it's the city I live in right now, Eden, and I want to know where a bar is. And so I go to the convenience store and I ask the guy, where's a bar at? And he doesn't know. And then a cop walks in. And I'm like, ooh, officer friendly. Let me ask this cop, where's a bar where I could go to and have a couple of drinks? And he goes, well, there's a bar around the corner, but uh, I'm not sure you want to go there. What do, you, what do you mean? Well, I don't think it would be safe for you to go there. So basically, what he's telling me is, if I go to this bar, it, it's not going to be safe for a black person to go up in there, which means he, he's trying to not get, to get me not go there because he don't want to have a bad night and me neither, right? This is a cop who's telling me this in 1997. Now, of course, I think that the constant irony is incredible because I'm, you know, my whole job is to try to help the nation improve race relations, and this dude is trying to protect me from being, having a hate crime against me by telling me not to go to a public area, right, a bar. Now, I don't think this same cop or in his, his analog now would tell either me or my analog at a at similar age to not do that now. I think it's different now. Now, I'm not saying it ain't great, and I'm not saying it's not hate crime. I'm just saying that the, the situation has changed for the better, which gives me more personal freedom. And, but we have to be able to talk about that in a way that is, that is um, direct and positive and not be resistant to that. If we're, if we're gonna be effective to persuade people racism is real, we have to acknowledge the ways in which things are better now. I told y'all, 60% of people, 60% of white people in 1990 thought that would tell a surveyor that black people are inherently uh, are lazy. Now it's down to 32%. 32% is way too high. It's a lot less than 60%. The other thing you mentioned that I got really excited about, so I told Xander to back channel that I had to mention it before he asked his question. Sorry, Xander. Is you mentioned collusion. And I got, oh, yeah. Because, of course, you, you go to someone on the street and you say, there's basically a collusion between the left and the right to keep this problem from being solved. And, you know, it doesn't matter whether that person's a left winger or right winger or other. They look at you like, what are you talking about? They hate each other. There is nothing that they are working mm -hmm. together on, right? And, mm -hmm. and you tell a left-wing person that. They're like, what? No, we're, the, we're, we're working against them to, to keep this going what, or to fix this. What's wrong with you? And, you know, this is, I, I, I suspect you've not read my book, but the core of it is that there is a, it's, it's not explicit. It's a bit of an unspoken agreement among the, the power players in each side that, look, if we like, mm -hmm. if, if we kind of reach across the aisle a bunch and like work together and, and found common ground and, and, you know, made sense of things and made progress, like, w you know, I as a politician or I as a media leader or a, you know, a social media leader, like someone who, who's, who's got people, you know, I've got power in some way, right? I lose power mm -hmm. by doing that compared to the person who stokes up tribalism, who stokes the war fighter thinking who keeps people mm -hmm. angry, that person is going to be more amplified, going to have more power. And so it's the, you know, the way I was, the way I, I interpreted when you mentioned collusion is that, you know, I always ask in this show, that Karl Marx's classic, qui bono, who benefits? And, and so there is a, again, they'll, they'll never even admit it to themselves, but I, I think what you're pointing out is this implicit collusion by the power players in the tribes to mm. keep this issue divisive, keep people angry, keep people feeling tribalistic, feeling under attack, feeling war fighting in order to give these power players even more power within their circles. Was, mm, was that perhaps what you were going for? Okay, you said it's well, a okay. I just think, so here's, so here's, here's what I would say. I'm not sure that it's, it's kind of Machiavellian collusion like that. But I do, I'm not sure, I told, I mean, it's interesting. I, 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 my tendency is to think it's, it's, it's in a certain way more insidious, 
Like in, in the sense, like it functions like that, but I, don't, I wouldn't say it's, um, you know, I'm as a dialogue person and a facilitator, you know, I'm, I'm always uh, um, loath to ascribe really negative intentions to people. But I would say that the impulse to turn your opponents into other than me is a deep impulse, even among people whose life is committed to reducing othering in society. So, so what that means is that you have, if you look at the, the power, going to go into your analysis, the power players on the political slash cultural left have a, there's a, there's an inclination to turn uh, people on the right into other, into evil, into badly. They got bad, bad motivations. They got bad policies. They're not smart enough. You, you can go down a list, turn them into other than, and turn them into other. They need to be not invited, but fought. Now, now I'm not sure that this is a kind of a Machiavellian. I'm, I'm unleashing those passions among my time, my tribe, so I can stay in power. I think it's, I think it's, my tendency is to think it's, it's, uh, it's more insidious than that. It's more like those people can't be reasonable. People are stupid. Those people are evil. We need to just fight them. But the, the messaging of how we don't want to reach out to them, we want to fight them, it serves the, it serves the same result as, as a different interpretation of what you're making, which is more Machiavellian and on purpose. I don't, I don't know. I'm not sure that it matters in terms of if, if we're trying to be force of reconciliation and dialogue, I'm not sure that which one matters that much. Because as you said, even, even, if, even if you're right, they don't admit it to themselves. Uh, so I think that we, you and I need to still be forces to try to lift up the unnecessariness of these kind of um, conflicts and how it produces a lose-lose as opposed to a win-win. So if we're thinking about that, I think we're actually, we're going to get a lot of, of mileage out of this, this term ideological purity on the show today. And that's good because it means if you come at a concept from different angles, you're probably working with something. And, you know, what, what comes to my mind is that in the last couple of years, although honestly, I'm not convinced that it's only a recent phenomenon, the idea of open-mindedness has both come into chic and then out of vogue very quickly. There is, an, I, there is the, the notion on both the left and the right, uh, sort of all over the political spectrum, and I'm not saying it's pervasive, but it exists, that... If you harbor certain thoughts, for example, that do not conform with sort of what is expected, then people don't even want to engage with you. And I feel like the both some of the reconsider principles as well as the race methodology that you outlined almost presumes that that people engaged in a conversation want to be engaged, want to actually talk about these things. So how, how do you go about, well, first, do you distinguish your method from open-mindedness as a general concept? And how do you go about getting people who might not even want to engage in these sorts of conversations to do that? Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. 
Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. So here's how I think about that. Listen, I, I, I did not, I really appreciate what you're saying about open-mindedness. I did not know that it was in vogue and then out of vogue again. I mean, I'm so, I got my head too in the ground on this racism issue to, to have a comment about that as a general culture. I would say, I would certainly say this, that one of the things that, that I, I try to promote to followers of the project is that they need to be, as, I, as I've already discussed, they need to be open-minded to the idea that there's some rightness in the people that they're trying to influence. That your racist uncle, your problematic aunt or whatever, that they're not completely wrong. So, so, so I try to promote that idea and as the, the method itself basically embodies that. So that's on the one hand. I also promote that people need to look at whether they have a bias against conservative people. And you know, I, I'm, I'm on some level a lightweight follower of you know, the whole Jonathan Haidt moral frameworks thing with the idea that conservatives and liberals have different moral frameworks they look at problems through and that all are valuable. And we need to first look at our own bias against other people and try to separate out, are we trying to move them off of racism or are we really trying to move them off of being conservative? Because I think that too many people on the left mix in their trying to get their people, people in their circle to not be racist, to trying to get them not be conservative. And conservatism not only has its own value for humankind, but the, it, the aspects of conservatism are not even about politics that we need to, that also have a value for humankind and that we need to, as, as even if we're progressive, we need to appreciate that and not, and give people and honor that in people as if we're trying to even move them off of racism. So we need to be open-minded about the potential value that people with a whole different way of looking at not only politics, but their, but their life have. Just to, just, to, just to clarify that, one of the things that we know is that people who are conservative tend to, they like safety more than change. They like consistency. They like safety as opposed to conservative. Liberal people tend to like, like taking risks and change. And, I mean, there's, you know, one, one can read up, you can read Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-D-T, the guy that wrote The Righteous Mind, to learn more about that. And if, and if his book is too thick, just listen to his TED Talk, and it lays it out very well. So, but my point is, is that people need to be open-minded to the idea that there are people who look at the world very differently and that that has value. We don't need to change them from that. So that's part of what I think you discussed. I also think that the other part of it is, is this. I think if you're really going to be in a conversation with somebody about a deep issue and you're really trying to go beneath and not just have an argument, it's important to, as a general matter, look at like maybe they're on to something. And that's what that's my work is dialogue is about. Like the, the difference between dialogue and debate is in a debate, you look at what, how the other person is wrong. In a dialogue, you're looking at how the person might be right and how that might expand your thinking. And so to, to that extent, Part of what I'm trying to do, and part of my whole life has been dedicated to, frankly, is the, is the promotion of a dialogic mindset and dialogic strategies. So I'm with you on the open-mindedness question. Now, I'm not open-minded about whether or not racism is a real factor. I'm, I'm trying to persuade people. I'm trying to get people to be more persuasive about that. But that doesn't mean that we're not open-minded about racism, about the idea, um, as I said earlier, that racism, that we need, to, we need to sharpen our sense of the progress we've made and the progress we haven't made. I think people need to be open-minded to that, certainly. Am I answering your question? 
You, you sure, are, sure are. And I think the way you answer it kind of portrays something that's a little hard to do nowadays, which is live in a gray area, live in a gray zone. It's, it's acceptable to both be willing to change your mind and still have strongly held convictions. And I think sometimes those are held as diametric oppositions. They, there's you know, no overlap whatsoever. And I, I think there is. And I think that you have your explanation kind of paints that portrait a little bit. Let me just say this one thing. I think that ultimately what you're trying to do with another person in the race method is you're trying to join the person in a dialogic journey. And, and so you're trying to get them to be open-minded, but you also need to be open-minded yourself, right? Because what you're trying to do is to engage them in an exchange, in a set of exchanges that is about us exploring together what's real. And the reason why you, on some level, the reason why you start out with I'm going, to try, I'm, I'm going to find out what's real for you through your experience. And then I'm going to try to meet some, call to mind some experience that you find that, that comports with you, right? That's the, 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 that's the connect method, the connect, expand. I'm going to try to, I'm, now I'm going to look at my experiences, the experiences of mine that are aligned with my position. And if you really can get somebody in dialogue journey, at some point you might deal with the fourth, if you look at a two by two matrix, what are your experiences that comport with my position? And that's just at the level of experience. If you want to move to other issues, you can start talking up. You can go up the, the chain. Like you look at, okay, what are values we have? What are values that you have that comport with your position, that I have that comport with your position, and then voter values that I have that comport with my position and values you have that comport with my position. And then you go up the facts, right? So part of, I haven't written all this out, by the way, but I, I have scoped it out about how one would manage a multi-layered conversation in which people are disputing, have disputes about facts and, they, and, and there's no trust. So you want to save facts and values until later because experience is a more of a bonding thing. But, 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 but the point I'm trying to make is that what you're trying to do is to get people to go on a dialogic journey. I just mapped out how it might go. That, that is based around we're doing this together and it's co- collaborative and co- cooperative. One of, the, one of the places I want you to expand is a place that we get pushback on even, even from our own audience sometimes about being open-minded and, and being willing to learn. Because I think you're right that, you know, there's, you know, not being willing to learn anything and change your own perspective, I, I think is a, it's a major impediment to even changing someone else's mind about something, right? Even mm-hmm. if you have a mission, if that mindset of they have nothing to teach me is there, you're, you're more likely to fail. I think this is the thing that people have the hardest time being truly willing to do rather than like even just thinking of it as a, ooh, it's a technique that I'll, you know, I'll use to manipulate this person into trusting me so that I can finally <laughs> stop them from being a, whatever you've labeled them as, racist, right. socialist, deplorable, globalist, vaccine denier, whatever it Climate is. Climate denier. Right. Yeah, exactly. So all these, all these things. So how does someone like actually you're, you, you've geared yourself up, right? You're like, all right, I'm going in, I'm going in here. We're going to have this conversation with, with my cousin about, you know, this, this issue that we seem to disagree very deeply about. How do you actually prepare yourself mentally so that, or, or how, you know, how do you actually change your thinking so that you go in ready to learn from this person and be expanded as you expand, as you help them expand? I think a critical aspect of that is both ginning up your empathy in the moment and, in the, and, and working on your empathy muscle in general when you're not in that moment. 
so I think some of this is a, is a, is a spiritual question and an empathy question. And I think if you, if you are not practiced in holding the uh, humanity of the other person and their dignity as something important, it's going to be hard to do that. But if you, then you look at them as a function, you look at them as a sort of an obstacle that you got to overcome instead of a real human being with like just as much value as you, maybe even as intelligent as you, that you need to take, that you want to take seriously because it feels better to take them seriously than to not do that. And because in some sort of long run perspective in God's view of believing God, y'all are both equally valid human beings. So I think, so I, but I think that, I think that the adjustment is made at a kind of a spiritual basis, which is, but, but, you know, on a, and I don't want me to be airy fairy. I'm saying that that's, that's a practical thing, right? You can, you can meditate on that in advance. You can meditate on that in, in a kind in, in, at the beginning of a conversation, you, you know, some, some, one of the techniques that I suggest that people do when they're at the, be, at the beginning of a difficult conversation is to remember really good times you've had with that person. As just as a, and, and, and I know that you were talking about it as more significant level and you're thinking about arguments, but I'm just saying when you're talking to somebody that you know and have a history with and, you, and maybe a difficult history with, it might be useful for you to, to stop for a moment and reflect upon times you felt close to that person. Uh, that might be a useful thing to do. It might be useful to think about, uh, the only thing that I tell people to do <laughs> when, when, they're about, when they're in a conversation with somebody that, that they know who's, who, and they find their views problematic, is to think about them as a, uh, as a five-year-old taking a bath. Right, because at one point they were a vulnerable five-year-old taking a bath, and that that is a valuable thing to do in order to remind yourself that they are a, like, even though they're, they're being a, you, you might think they're a jerk now, they weren't always like that. They're a vulnerable human being with value, et cetera. So my, the point I'm trying to make is that there are, it's a, fundamentally a, a spiritual question, but there are things you can do to, to bump up that part of yourself to, to, to basically to prepare yourself to take their humanity and perspective seriously. Now, I'm not saying it solves all problems, but I'm saying that I think if, if more people did that, they would be more likely to end the midst of the conversation than say, I'm not going to not be so quick to just dismiss what they're saying. So I, I, I kind of want to take this back to something you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation, because for the most of this episode so far, we've talked about your development of this type of dialectic, how to have these sorts of conversations. But at the beginning, you mentioned how this is part of your work. And the other part of your work is figuring out how sort of the engagement with this dialectic has policy implications and you do have an advanced degree in public policy. So I'm curious, having been, having been involved in this project now for a while, having developed a clear methodology, having put out lessons and how to implement it a little bit more sort of day to day, what policy implications have you found? Have you found any? What, what has not been accomplished that could be accomplished in the future? Well, the list of what has them been accomplished is way longer than which the Fair list enough. of what has. Yeah. So, and let's be, so let's be clear about that. So I, I will try to, I will try to answer that question, but I don't, I don't know if I have a uh, long, extensive answer I'm proud of. So, so, he, so I would say this, that the Black Ally Toolkit is on some level trying to achieve a cultural change. The, the explicit goals of the project are we're trying to move the 55%, that 55% figure of white people who don't think racism is against people of color is worse, more significant than racism against white people. The goal of the project is try to move that to 45% by 2025. That's, if you do the math on that, that's like 16 million white people. <laughs> that's a lot of white people moving. And they're not all coming to David's workshop, right? Which is, which is why the point of the project is to spread these skills through the white ally population. Now, if I, I think that if that happens, 
you will reduce the resistance to various types of equity initiatives, both within institutions and that the government might do. But that's, a, that's a, like a cultural shift. Now, that's a long-run project. Hopefully that'll happen. Hopefully people want to support that. But in terms of the policy implications, I would say it's, I, I, would, I have not pursued that as much as I have dreamed of pursuing it. And, but here's how I would, here's, here's, here's what my speculation about that. I think I said earlier, I just mentioned it briefly, I'll go into a little bit more depth about it. One of the things I think that we need to create is an anti-racist conservatism, because as I already have mentioned, I think that the conservative uh, movement has been unfortunately manipulated such that any claims about racism are uh, become uh, viewed as worthy of uh, diminishment and disdain. I think that I think that instead we'd be better off if we had a conservative movement that said racism is real. That we're going to address its effects through conservative type of measures that measure, that focus on the use of markets, expanding freedom, et cetera. Now, I think that in order to create that, that that takes a lot of work. That like like you know I have written proposals that have not been funded about like getting conservative policy analysts who are not so much you know, so prominent that they can't change their position because what ha- one thing that happens is people become too prominent, they can't ever, they can't change their position. To really have some extensive kind of conversations in back rooms that are well facilitated, et cetera, where we talk about like, okay, let's really, let's talk about our housing problem. And let's, and let's, let's really talk about our housing problem and how we're going to fix the lack of affordable housing and, li- and, and address the role address it in general, including the role that racism plays in that. Or let's look at our poverty problem. Or let's look at our transportation situation, or et cetera, et cetera. Now, to do that, th- that requires actual work if you're trying to get conservative people who are part of this decades-long movement of diminishing any kind of claims about racism. You, you, you have to fight against your basic resistance, but you, you actually have to do some policy-heavy lifting informed by actual facts and data with like, you know, egghead researchers arguing out, arguing things out and talking about what we know to really do that work. Now, my feeling is that it's probably going to need to be progressive folks who are facilitating these conservative folks having conversations about how to come to come how to develop conservative solutions that are that acknowledge the existence of racism to these issues. Now, I don't so I can't I can't tell you what the result of that is, which would be what are the policy implications of that. But I can tell you the kind of that my that's my speculation about the kind of process we need. But somebody's got to fund that. Like so you, we need some think tanks to put those put the right people in the rooms to do that kind of back room work, intellectual work to come up with those solutions. But now we don't we you know the progressive folks don't want they don't want to acknowledge that there could be conservative solutions. So we don't have it, and conservative folks want to deny racism. So we don't have the intellectual work necessary to develop that. Does that make, does that make do you understand what I'm talking about? Does that yeah. hold up? Does that hold up at least? <laughs> I, I think it does. And I think you point out sort of uh, an important aspect of policymaking, which is just there's a lot of heavy lifting involved, right? Sometimes, well, the idea won't take it all the way and organization is extraordinarily difficult. And I think that's the reality of policy and politics. I mean, let's look at, let's look, for example, at, at just employment discrimination. I mean, there's numerous, numerous resume studies that show if you have the same resume and one dude's name is Colin and the other dude's name is Daquan, a whole bunch of people are going to get, are going to want to hire Colin and not Daquan. Now, I'm not saying that this that, that discrimination factor explains everything about employment discrepancies, but that is a the, the, the studies repeatedly show that that is a significant factor. 
So if we're trying to, if we're trying to develop an anti-racist conservatism, we need to have some people who ultimately, you know, work for Cato or Heritage or whoever, who think of themselves as experts in labor policy in a room where, the, where it's not on C-SPAN and, they're, and they won't be criticized by people, other people on the right who, you know, they won't be criticized by pundits, but who can really try to work at, okay, what is the role that discrimination is playing in our labor markets? And, and what's the role that, how well are they functioning? And what's the role that your basic unconscious bias is playing in that? And what can we do? What's the conservative approach to addressing that? That, that requires real work and that the work doesn't happen and, and, and requires some convening and facilitation and somebody has to, has to do that work and it's not happening now because the people at Cato or Heritage or you name it, they want to deny the existence of racism in the first place. And then the people on the left don't want to, they don't want any kind of solution that's based on conservative principles. So we don't, so what we get is at the level of politics, we get a whole set of progressive solutions that acknowledge racism and a whole bunch of certain ones that don't. And then we're arguing about racism is real or not. And then you have Trump appointees who say racism, discrimination doesn't even exist as opposed to discrimination is a real thing. And we're going to, we're going to, because somebody has done the policy work to come up with solutions based on conservative principles, we're going to acknowledge that reality and pursue it. And I'll say, and, and pursue it. I'll say one more thing about that. And what that, what that also produces is a, highly politicized politics. So you don't have to be a policy analyst to know that the, that the Republican Party as a general matter conservative movement diminishes or denies the existence of racism. So why, that's why we have a hyper-racialized politics. That's another reason that I'm trying to promote an anti-racist conservatism, the development of it, is so our politics won't be so racialized, right? We don't need really the Republican Party to be the white people's party and the Democratic Party to be like the, the progressive white people and all the people of color. That's not good for democracy. It's not good for people of color. It's not good for the Republican Party, so, but we have to do some other work to undo that. All right, I have one final question, and you know, because we have we have kept you, I think, on an hour now, and and I can shows. go longer. We can make this. You can you can then you can decide to make this a two parter if you want to. Well, that's also <laughs> true. Um, <laughs> the last thing that I'd actually prepared for is the other reason. I may have to put some more thought before I have a whole lot more questions. Okay. Is I think the other pushback that we often get is. People make arguments. People make arguments for using using anger, using shaming, using you know protest, other forms of more you know of aggression. Uh, it's probably a loaded, too loaded a term, but oh, ver- ver- verbal aggression. Yeah, in in the with the aim of with the with the stated aim of making kind of, some kind of progress in society. Do you think that? there is also room for that. Do you think that that has efficacy at certain times in certain places in order to advance, you know, in, in one case, you know, racial equality and, and in other cases, other kinds of issues? Okay. So I'm not on top of all the research about it, but I am, I think I have seen research that suggests people don't learn that much when they're shamed out. Like it's not, that is that's not effective strategy for creating actual changes in people's perspective. Now, then, uh, so, that, so that's one thing. So if you're really trying to change somebody's actual beliefs, I, I, I'm pretty sure there's some research that suggests that anger and shame are, not, are typically not helpful. Now, sometimes you're not really trying to change people's beliefs. You're trying to change their behavior. So 
that's the uh, that's on the one hand. I'll talk about that, and then I'm going to talk about like when you're talking the use of uh, uh, other the anger and shame with your side. Let me talk about the second one first. So I think that um, here's what when I talk about the White Ally Toolkit workbook. You know, I have a, I have a number of books, the White Ally Toolkit project, as well as videos. People can look it up online. In the White Ally Toolkit workbook, one of the things I talk about is the difference between the coaching voice and the prophetic voice. And I think that one of the things that white allies do, and they perhaps learned well from people of color and have just learned well from the progressive left anyway, is to do a kind of a sharp distinction making, a othering of people and talking about their bad intention and their bad actions and be uncompromising in their rhetoric. And what that is really great for is firing up your side. That's just fantastic for that. That's, that's great at the rallies and at the, whether it's a big rally or a, a, a little meeting to like mobilize people because you define other people as the enemy and you get energized and that's great for that. That is a totally different palette of rhetoric that you need than when you're trying to talk to your cousin after Thanksgiving, right? After Thanksgiving dinner, you need to have a whole different way of talking to him, not only just using, using different kind of terms and concepts, but your whole style of talking needs to be very different. You need to be more in the coaching voice than in the prophetic voice. So I think that, 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 that when you're talking to people on your side, all that anger and sort of shaming of people by implication, not in the room, but you're shaming them anyway, can have a value mobilizing your side. People just need to know that you, when, you're talking, when you're talking to actual people to change their mind, that's different. So one of the things I have said is that white folks need to learn the code switching that people of color have been doing for 200, 300 years, which is you talk one way to people who agree with you and a different way to people who disagree with you. So that's, so that's one issue. So I'm saying that, that that rhetoric and that style has a value in talking to your people. Now, on the, the, the other place I think is valuable sometimes is that in, in public settings where you're trying to move politicians, I think they're, or move, you're not trying to change people's opinion, you're just trying, you're trying to, to, to uh, make them harder to pursue a certain course of action. And, and also some of you are really talking to your side anyway. In those, in those settings, then uh, sharpening your rhetoric so that you make out their position to be worthy of shame or worthy of scorn or all of, or other ways problematic can be can sometimes have be have a, a positive or, or it sometimes can pursue your goals in a context of trying to manipulate people's behavior because if you can put them in the right rhetorical box it's hard for them to do what they wanted to do so that might be valuable but you're not necessarily changing their behavior changing their opinion you're just changing their behavior so I would just say as a so I'm not decrying, I'm not completely decrying the use of those tactics. I'm just saying, let's not pr- pretend that we're really changing somebody's mind when we do that. We're, we're doing the opposite of that. In other words, there are different tools for different circumstances, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I guess maybe I, I should have said it shorter. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's the point of a summary if you have nothing to summarize? <laughs> Look, if we just wanted to give people the bullet point version of something, we wouldn't have a podcast. There you go. <laughs> and they can just read the bullet points and not listen to the podcast. Uh, so, uh, right, we've, we've already kind of alluded to it a couple of times on this episode, David, but what, if people want to get more involved or learn more about the White Ally Toolkit, where can they go? What can they do? What's, what's the sure. next steps for someone who listened sure. to what you said and said, yeah, sign me up? Sure. Okay. So, so I will try to briefly run through our offerings so people can know. So our website, whiteallytoolkit.com you will see a number of routes to the core content of the project. So one is, one is the White Ally Toolkit Workbook, which is a relatively thick 
I'd like to think well-written book that is like a 300-page guide. It has exercises, reflection exercises, things to do. It gives you guidance about how how to deal with specific racially problematic statements, explains the race method and how you apply it to those to various statements. It gives you a conversational, like a, a, like a discussion guide for having a conversation, a sequence of conversations with one person. So like you, if you're trying to persuade somebody who doesn't think racism is real, you don't start out with structural racism, right? You maybe start with something more, more, less complex, right? So it gives people a guide on that. So, and then we have a, a discussion guide because a lot of what people are doing is a group of people you know, we suggest no more than 10, like all by the book, and then they work through it, but we give them some guidance as to how to do that in the discussion guide. Then we set us, that's, so that's a couple, that's two routes. Then we have something called the Compassionate Warrior Boot Camp, which is more, which is a, which is a, like a daily instruction, like a 25 minute a day task that takes you, that teaches you the race method and teaches you step by step. And then by the end of 30 days of instruction, it's probably more than 30 calendar days, you have actually done the race method with, a, with what we call a racism skeptic. I call people who, at 55% of folks, I don't call them racism deniers, I call them racism skeptics because I'm trying to use language that they would find respectful if they would hear that language. So, so, that, so that's another route. Then, as was alluded, we, we have the, people go to the website, they can see like the free video, short video about the race method, but we have a video course that is, it's like a 15 minute course in the multiple lessons that takes people and has worksheets so people can like learn it that way. And then of course, what, what we're on some level more famous for is we do workshops. So I'm, I'm, I'm a longtime trainer and we go all around the country doing workshops. And for some of these workshops, we have hosts, we have a revenue sharing model with the host so that they have an incentive to put the butts in the seats. So there's no, multiple ways that we try to get our content out there. And, uh, you know, so and we try to do that in a way on workshops to make it productive for the people who want to invite us to where they go, where they are. All right. With that, David, I'd, I'd like to say thank you so much for joining us on the show today. It was really engaging conversation and I think food for thought for people who are interested in, well, engaging, period, engaging in, in a political discourse that I think a lot, many have found lacking in the last couple of years. I really appreciate being on it because I think that ultimately our problems, we, we can look at the Russian attack on our elections as like we have a national weakness and we all need to rally together to kind of knit our society back together. And if we don't, we, if we don't figure out ways to talk to each other, they will do that again. Like not only is it unpleasant to us to have people in our family we can't talk to or neighbors we can't talk to, people are undermining our democracy based on our divisions. And so it's really, it's, it, what you're doing is really important in trying to get people to reconsider these divisions and reconsider how they are relating to them. So I appreciate what you do and I appreciate the chance to be on this show. Thanks, man. And we are blessed that we got a lot of super high quality, smart, engaging uh, guests. And, and this, was, this has been one of, the, one of the shows I have enjoyed most by far. So we'll, we'll leave everything, all, all the links in the notes. David, thanks again for joining us. And remember, dear listeners, don't let the pundits do the thinking for you. Pause and reconsider. This is Eric signing off. Xander signing off. We'll see you next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.